Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. My name is Todd Rittendaro, and in this episode, I sit down with photographer Robert Spangle. Robert is a Los Angeles-based photographer, but can be found traveling for 30 weeks out of the year, photographing for the likes of GQ, Vogue, The Rake, and many, many others, as well as pursuing personal projects around the world. In this episode, we talk about his experiences in the Marines with two deployments to Afghanistan, becoming an apprentice on Savile Row, and how he ultimately found photography. We also delve into why he shoots with a Leica MD system, what influenced his style and aesthetics, and his ongoing projects exploring hyper-masculine roles such as matadors, fighters, and racers in the search for truth and spirituality. It was an absolute pleasure for me to interview Robert, and there's so much good stuff in this episode, so I hope you enjoy. Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for sitting down for me. I've admired your work for a really long time, and uh, there's a lot I would love to ask you, so I really appreciate you doing this. Well, Todd, very happy to, uh, to be here. First, I'd love to get a little bit into your background, which is incredibly fascinating. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Malibu, California. Oh, you did? Okay. And I lived there until I was uh, 18, basically. Oh, wow. And then did you, you join the military? Obviously, you were in the Marines. And yeah, I signed up. I signed up when I was 17 and a half, and I won as soon as I graduated, which would have been 2007. So, yeah, ways back at this point. Did you always know that you wanted to do that when you were in beginning of high school or was it a by the time I was in high school I knew I was going to join the military but it was not something I, I grew up wanting to do or thinking of doing uh, I decided shortly after September 11th which I think I was about let's see I was 12 or 13 when that happened and I oh, think yeah. that was a, a very impressionable age it's like this age where you kind of think you understand the whole world sure are capable of thinking you understand the whole world but don't so that wound up shaping kind of my my high school years I was very set about joining the Marines wow and what was it about the Marines specifically I didn't really know anything about the military so that wasn't my that wasn't my immediate choice I hadn't really decided on a branch of service um, I had a, a grandfather who was in the Navy and I kind of knew I didn't want to do that I thought that if I was going to join in a time of war I wanted to be as hands-on and direct about it as possible. Wow. Otherwise, it just seemed like a, a kind of compromise on your on your time, um, and that seemed like the most you could do. So that left me after a little bit of research uh, with the Army and the Marine Corps, and the Marine Corps had higher standards and had uh, a rougher reputation. So it's not that I thought that I was better than or uh, necessarily Marine material. I just realized that the smarter of the two groups is the one who signed up for the hardest assignment with the highest standards and I wanted to be surrounded by those guys. Right. <laughs> if I was gonna be in a war zone. That makes sense. So in a weird way it was sort of survival instinct and, and logic. Wow, incredible. And then you took it one step further, obviously with special forces within the Marines, right? Right. So I got and and that again was that was good luck. I've had I've had a lot of good luck. I'd had quite a few years to train to be ready to join the Marines. And I signed up very young. I signed up as young as you could. My parents had to had to sign off on oh, it wow. because I'd had a lot of time to get ready. I did really well on the entrance tests, and this was also a time when I think like the war was at its height. So they said, "Hey, you know, you've got a really high GT score, and you did really well on the the physical fitness stuff. Why don't you try out for reconnaissance once you've gone through infantry school?" And I I told them no because I didn't really want to do anything special. I just wanted to do the infantry, and that was what the Marine Corps was about to me. 
but they were insistent and they said you know you can also swim you've done a lot of stuff in the water like we need guys with that background so I said after they told me that if I failed I'd wind up being in the infantry anyway I said okay why not you know if I can be of a mm, yeah if I can be more utilized then let's go that way uh, but I didn't know anything about reconnaissance and this was this wasn't pre-internet but there was not a lot of information out there right so I wound up going to the basic reconnaissance course spent two maybe three months going through their kind of holding training program which is just getting thrashed every single day god I can imagine um, and like learning knots and like little uses things like that then I went through BRC which was an additional three maybe four months um, with a really really high attrition rate survived that made that through and they sent me over to 2nd Recon Battalion which is in Camp Lejeune North Carolina Camp Lejeune I got even luckier um, without even really comprehending how lucky I'd gotten alphabetically I was the the last one of the last three guys on the the call sheet so right when we signed up at the unit showed up at the unit we got off the bus and they were telling everyone what company they were going to and they told me and the, the three guys in front of me or maybe behind me uh, that we were going to go over to Force Company which put us in Force Reconnaissance which was very much against the standards of the unit normally you have to have two combat deployments and about six years of experience in the Marine Corps and uh, perfect recommendations and perfect physical testing and uh, expert riflery and all these things to apply to get into this unit but they had had a lot of casualties um, they lost quite a few guys to going to other special forces units, and they didn't. They no longer had enough people in the unit to for it to be uh, active or to be listed as active. They were they were very very short on personnel. So we showed up. We were basically told you guys are placeholders. You're here for like the next couple weeks, maybe like two months, until we can find correctly qualified personnel to fill out these to fill out these jobs. Uh, but basically sit down, shut the fuck up, and hopefully you can learn a thing or two wow. before before you get bounced elsewhere, which at the time was really disheartening. As it turned out, a couple guys got bounced out, and I was on a, uh, we were on assignment in a, an island off of South America when President Obama sent us directly to Afghanistan on about, 48 hours notice 72 hours notice I <laughs> oh think it was God. which is one of the special capabilities of that unit is that they can go on a six or seven month deployment anywhere in the world and be from notification to getting into the country that less than three days wow so that happened and then when I returned from that deployment they were like okay we're gonna hold on to you you guys so wow. yeah that was that was but that was that was that was a little bit of choice and a lot of luck so. right Wow, man. What an incredible journey <laughs> through the military. Were, was photography on your radar at that point? Absolutely not. I hated photography. Oh, really? <laughs> um, I have... <laughs> there's a lot of amateur photographers in my family, which meant that every Christmas card we ever did was like a Ann Leibowitz production <laughs> and just like the bane of my existence. I think the only... The only like negative memorable episode of my childhood is like I threw a rock at a photographer <laughs> which my my parents had I think hired to do family portraits and I just like hated being told to sit still and hated being in front of a camera so I, I hated photography actually growing up 
That is so funny. I was given a really nice camera by my grandfather for a birthday, which I, I don't even think I took it out of the packaging. And I grew up drawing, so I really, like, I looked down on photography. I thought it was really, really, uh, I thought it was a sort of like a pseudo art, and there was a lot of insecurity, and I just didn't like it at all. And then in, in the military, we had a full Canon suite. It's about $100,000 worth of camera equipment. Wow. Whatever Canon's top-of-the-line camera was, there was two of those. We had uh, like a 400-millimeter lens, doublers, telephotos, like a, a lens suite of about six or seven different lenses, um, every kind of enlarger you could possibly have. And it was there, and you could use it whenever you wanted, and I never touched it. <laughs> it wasn't I, part of the job even with recon or anything? It was. It was because uh, normally the point man in any team carries out a full camera suite and normally wow. a 200 meter lens with a doubler or a 400 meter lens even a 600 millimeter lens uh, which we call the Jesus lens <laughs> um, because a huge amount of the job is gathering intelligence sure. I mean that's the name of the game is gathering intelligence uh, behind enemy lens and a huge amount of that is photographing people, identifying people photographing compounds, photographing vehicles and then digitally transmitting that back to your headquarters for analysis so it was a huge part of the job, um, and that makes it, it's one of those things that makes it really unique within the Marine Corps. Wow. And every single person in the team is, is trained roughly how to use the camera, mm. and I got as far away from it as I possibly could. I just didn't, <laughs> how funny. I didn't want anything to do with it. How funny. Um, gosh, I'm sure, I mean, there's three to four other hours worth of questions I could definitely ask you about uh, Marine stuff, pr most of which you probably can't even talk about. but. Um, Oh, it's been five years. We're all right. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm also fascinated, so um, not, to, not to gloss over that, is there anything you feel like you want to talk about within that? I think, I mean, as it, as, it, as it relates to photography or future things, I looked when I'm looking back on those years quite often thinking, man, what a amazing opportunity for photography that I totally, <laughs> a lot, like, totally didn't, didn't seize and didn't see at the time, which was unfortunate. But one of the key things that came out of it that did wind up manifesting in photography was the idea of being an observer and also the idea of uh, just a, a keen interest in the world and having the ability to travel and traveling as like wide and far as possible. That was mm. something that in the military, like whether you liked it or not, you were used to it after a year. And if, after four years, you'd either be like insane and totally sick of it or you'd come to love it. Right. And did you feel like you got the travel bug from being in the Marines, or were you glad to be back? I think I, I was not so interested in that before joining the Marines, and then afterwards I realized that I'd been totally fine traveling every two weeks, every ten days is what it about averaged oh, to. Well. And sucking up the kind of suck factor of that opened your, opened your horizons to so many different things if you were just willing to like live kind of in the rough and, and be willing to go anywhere. Right. Yeah, man, that's really, I find that all, that whole world so fascinating that I just don't really know a whole lot about. Um, but then something that also fascinates me is that uh, just doing a little bit of research on you, then you were an apprentice to a tailor on Savile Row. Right. After the Marines. So how did you make that leap from sort of this military lifestyle mindset to men's tailoring? I mean, it was, it was a complete 180. And that part of it, that part of it was very much intentional. I realized in, in the military that you were in, you were in very much in a, a fixed culture, right? And the culture rotated 
revolved around the military and your duties and different stations and things like that. But I came to realize there's a lot more to life than that. Luckily, I had some good Marine friends who were like maybe a little bit more open-minded and wanted to see things, you know, outside of just like strip clubs and gun stores and like cheap bars. <laughs> um, but I realized, you know, getting into the military, like there was a lot more to the world um, than just than just what I'd seen in the military, and that was worth exploring. And I guess thinking about getting into the military, I was starting to get interested in clothes a little bit, and like the books I would have been encountering was like Alan Flusser's books. Oh yeah. So I was sort of aware of tailoring before anything else, and I was like, oh, what a you know what a beautiful idea this this idealized harmonized form, and it's really very far removed, almost as far removed from fashion as it is from from being a Marine, it's like this timeless fixed ideal, which I really liked. And I guess that kind of, that, that stayed in the back of my mind. And I went to, you know, I went to university and I quickly realized I didn't want to design video games. Um, that was my original idea. Oh. And I wound up sort of falling into studying fashion because I was like, okay, I have a budding interest in it. It involves drawing. I don't really know what else I'm gonna do. It's 98% women. So I went into that for for about a year. I studied that. And, and as I came to understand fashion, I realized that, like, I really wanted to do something more pure. And I didn't feel very secure in my place or, or belonging in fashion. It was mm -hmm. just, like, something I'd sort of fallen into. And everyone I was surrounded by was really invested and really understood it. And, and I wasn't quite there yet. So I thought, okay, like, I really want to have a foundation in this. And I really want to approach this in a, a really pure way. Uh, Walter van Beerdendonk, who is a famous designer in his own right, but also the head of the Royal Antwerp Academy wow. of their fashion department, came and gave a, a speech at the school I was attending. And his line was basically that fashion was was in, and is and should only be approached as a high art as, a, as an artistic mode of expression and everything else was, was secondary and not really to be considered. And that kind of blew my mind because I was going to a very commercial school and I left school uh, after that and decided that I was going to do tailoring because that seemed like the bedrock of men's fashion. And yeah. it seemed like the most, the most like extreme foundation you could have. Um, it was almost like an architect's approach, right? So I started looking at, okay, like, how do I, you know, how do I, how do I get to Savile Row, right? This is, this is, it's a much easier thing now, but back then it was like a lot of digging through the internet, and I found a apprenticeship program there at Maurice Sedwell. Wow. Oh, I think I wrote, I wrote them an email, and I said, you know, hey, I'm living in the United States, I'd like to come do this, and. Uh, talked to them on the phone and they said they had a space so I packed up what few things I had and I, I moved to London wow incredible <laughs> it was a bit of a leap because I'd never really done any tailoring before and I was not very good at sewing so I was like oh great I'm gonna go dive into my <laughs> absolute weakness right now I showed up there and I absolutely loved it it was the best decision I think I've ever made in my entire life wow I was, I was there for a year and a half something like that I spent six six and a half days a week working from about 9 a.m. until 7, 8, 9, 10 p.m., whatever right. it was, just learning how to be a tailor. So learning pattern making, cutting, 
the actual making of the garments, fittings, finishing as well. I really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It was like the most pure part of my life. All I was doing was tailoring. Wow. You were learning every day. The standard was very, very clear. In some ways, it was it was a little bit like going back to the military. It was a very high standard. The standard was understood. Everyone who was there was passionate and hardworking. Whether they were talented or not was kind of what you were finding out in the first year and a half. Right. Just I, re- I really enjoyed it. And also, I got to be surrounded by people who had the same passion that I did. Mm-hmm. In the military, I was surrounded by people who were exceptionally hardworking. We had the same values. We had the same goals. We didn't necessarily have the same passions. So being around a group of people who all had the same passion was absolutely electrifying. Wow. And that was also the period where I got heavily into photography. I'd, I'd had it as, started as a hobby a few months before I went to London, and then it really kind of, it became this thing that like very sneakily preoccupied my life while I was out there. And then uh, about the time I was getting ready to leave London, I got my first job offer and that kind of, Wow, sent you off on the yeah. on that yeah, track. Yeah, that, that became something that was more or less very different from tailoring. That's incredible. Did you have any formal mentors or training in photography at that point, or were you were you shooting uh, street style? So I was told to be complicated. I, I had to take a photography course in college as like a one on one prerequisite type of thing, and. It was that and some other class that I was totally not interested in. So I took photography because I thought if I'm going into fashion, this is at least relevant Mm -hmm. because there are fashion photographers and I was aware of that. And I was like, okay, you know, if I'm designing things, I'm going to have to work with a photographer at some point. So I took that photography class and I didn't have any mentors. I didn't have any interest in it at all, really. I was aware of Scott Schulman's work, Mm -hmm. which I loved. Uh, That was like probably the first one of the first blogs I ever followed. And I thought that was... His perspective on fashion was also my interest in fashion. I wasn't so interested in like the runways yet or even high fashion, but I love to see it on the street. I love to see the way actual people put it together because I think mm. what had prevented me from really engaging with fashion at any other point in my life was the fact that I think when, if you're, you know, like an average American dude from Malibu, California, you open up a fashion magazine, like, you're going to be put off. There's a lot of like really homoerotic imagery, which like as a young guy is like hard, like it's very, it's really hard to deal with. Sure. Right. It's like hard to, to get your kind of, it's hard to get past. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially if you're in the Marine Corps, that's definitely frowned upon. Uh, <laughs> then it probably still now. And Scott Schulman's approach was much more like, this is what real dudes are wearing. This is what real people are wearing. And isn't this great? And yeah. like, not all these guys are models and not all these guys are millionaires. And like, it really helped me understand fashion in, in, in human terms. So I was aware of that. Didn't want to be a photographer. Uh, the first guy I photographed though, uh, fundamentally changed the way I valued photography. The shortest version possible is I was just like taking photos from my first assignment on the street. And this guy, uh, super jovial, radiantly happy, came up to me and insisted that I take his portrait. And this was in downtown LA. So this guy could have been really happy-go-lucky or he could have been totally insane because downtown LA is a lot of totally insane people. <laughs> I kind of looked at him and he had like a, a faded Lakers jersey and like ripped up skinny black jeans and some Nikes, which was the style then. And it kind of occurred to me like this guy could be like a rapper or he could be homeless. Like, I don't know. 
eventually he convinced me to take his photo because I was like basically like if I take the photo then <laughs> he's gonna be happy and he's gonna leave so I took a photo of him and he was super happy and uh, he went his way and I went home and the following day I was on that same street and I go to the, went to the same cafe that I always went to and they had a memorial for this guy I recognized from his from his first name and the and his picture was on it and I'd taken a picture of him yesterday totally blown away I talked to the people at the cafe and he'd uh he'd killed himself like oh my god within i mean a few hours maybe an hour after i'd taken his picture he was, was a producer of some kind successful super manic depressive and i went back and i like looked at this picture i'd taken and i was like this is just a picture of a guy who is stylish and looks really really happy and it's also at this time you know, this is his obituary. This is also a, a really a, a poignant picture of the extremes of mental illness. This guy was alive and radiantly happy to the point where he was stopping Sanders in the street. And then that same evening, he decides to end his life. So it really disturbed me. I, I, I put my camera away yeah. and I kind of <laughs> felt cursed. I was like, I just left this profession where a lot of people were dying all the time. And uh, I sort of wanted to get as far away from that as possible. Uh-huh. It's part of the reason I went into fashion was like to live in this fanciful, beautiful world. And now people are dying again. What the hell? Wow, man, that's intense. Jeez. But after like a very, very few days, I was I had a camera again, and I really started then going out and just taking pictures of people who interested me. Really bad amateurish pictures. Uh, but by the time I got to London, the head cutter of, of the shop that I worked at um, who was a bit of a mentor and wound up kind of mentoring me in photography even though he didn't know it, mm. Andrew Ramroop, you know, he told me, because he saw me carrying his camera, he's like, look, you know, if you see someone wearing a suit you like, go take a picture of them. Study that picture. Figure out how that suit fit them. Figure out how it worked, why it worked. Look at the interaction between the cloth and the body and figure out why that worked and then come back and try to do it here. Uh-huh. I like that. So kind of with his encouragement and blessing... I was showing up to work very early, taking a lot of photos, taking photos at lunch, taking photos after work. Uh, and a lot of it was guys, like people, people I worked with, other people in the row. Um, it's a very, it's a small society and it's very closed. But that was kind of my way of, of studying fashion. So I did that the entire time I was there. You know, that became a blog and became, you know, was, this was like Tumblr. People right. started, you know, kind of following it, interacting with it. And there was positive feedback there. So I kept doing it. And then eventually that, that culminated in a, a job offer. Wow, incredible. What was the first job offer? So the first the first job offer I had was from uh, British GQ. Which is which is <laughs> totally pretty good one. Which is totally out of the blue. I just I you know, opened my laptop one day and Nick Carvel, who's now a really close friend of mine, had written me an email and said, you know, hey, we have this we have the street style section, we really like what you're doing, would you consider doing it for us? I totally bit my tongue because I was like, I'm, I'm a complete amateur. I'm not even using a real camera. I've never <laughs> once considered myself a photographer. And I also realized that if I was working for them, then that meant I was going to be traveling quite a lot and I couldn't do tailoring anymore. So that was a that was a kind of, that was a tough choice because I really liked tailoring and I really enjoyed it and I just sort of gotten the hang of it. And then there was this photography offer and I just, that was, that I probably struggled with that for like a month. Wow, I bet. Or maybe I've been struggling a bit leading up to this. I, I'm not really, I'm not really sure now. But it was one of these moments where I had to be like, I, I had to learn to be very honest with myself. And I told myself for a long time, like, I want to be a tailor and I want to be a designer. 
but I had to recognize what I was telling myself I wanted to do and what I actually enjoyed doing. And I really enjoyed photography and I was waking up early to do it. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, I remember, like, kind of called me. We were in separate countries. And uh, I was like, you know, you're not very good at design. <laughs> but you're really good at photography. Maybe you should do that. And I kind of recognized, oh, look, you know what? I have been, I, I, what else in my life have I ever been willing to wake up super early on a cold morning and, and go outside and been excited to go and do? And photography was kind of the thing. So I, I jumped very abruptly into photography. Um, reasoning that if it didn't work out, I could be a tailor when I was 40. Right. I probably couldn't be a globetrotting photographer because I would just be more old and tired than <laughs> I already was at that point. Oh, man, that's so fascinating. Uh, did he ever, sorry, what was the GQ editor's name? Nick Carvel. Did Nick ever say what it was about your images that he was responding to? We talked, I mean, we talked about it later. Once I knew him to the point where I could confess, like, I wasn't a photographer then, and I had no idea what I was doing, but thanks for the job. And I think he had seen my images a, a couple other places, and I think he liked that I was looking at things from a from a tailor's perspective, and that's what he got from it. I wasn't just photographing guys in suits. Right. It was guys in Soho, guys in the East End. But I think tailoring gave me a really, really good eye for proportion proportion in silhouette and mm. then also color as well. Right. Maybe a bit conservative, but it's a really good bedrock to evaluate things from. I think if you're just interested in fashion and you're like 22 or 23 and taking photos on the street, like you're going to photograph a lot of stuff that's pretty naff just because it's interesting or you don't understand it. Whereas if you have tailoring as a background, even if you're photographing something that isn't tailoring, you're looking for proportion and silhouette and color and contrast. And that is, like I said, a, a better or more classical way to approach it, more mm -hmm. universal, maybe a little bit more mature. Yeah, I love that. But I wasn't, I wasn't aware of any of that at the time. That's just, I was just doing. Yeah, there's a deeper, thing. deeper intent that you're looking for. That probably most, you know, younger street style photographers or amateur photographers are not really aware of. They're just responding to what's pretty. Right, which I wasn't, you know, I wasn't aware of either. I was just kind of. I was literally just reacting to things on the camera, and that was and that was it. It just yeah. happened to be that I had a I had a background that informed me in a in an advantageous way. And that is super fascinating. That's super cool. And then so you ended up shooting for that. Was that sort of a staff position, or it wasn't a staff position? Or I I think initially that was well, initially when you started working together that was like a staff position, and that was kind of discussed. I also didn't know what a contract was. I didn't know freelance versus versus anything at the time. Once I kind of figured those things out, I realized that staff was not the best way to go for me. Yeah, uh, I think I was I was told a couple of times that like <laughs> my desk was being used for uh, the surplus sponsored snacks. <laughs> um, fitting anyway, but yeah, I mean, I, w with that, I slowly kind of got my got my hang for the industry, and I had to figure out how what it meant to be to you know a, to be a professional photographer, and that was probably the point in my life where. I've, I luckily encountered like a lot of mentors and people who kind of like gave me the hip pocket class on like how to be a professional and how to get people to pay you. And <laughs> That's always helpful. What kind of, you know, what kind of camera I should be using, what kind of equipment I should use and how what my editing process should be, which I was really fortunate, really, really fortunate. Yeah. Were some of those other street style photographers or? Um, Adam Katzindig mm. 
was was foremost in those. I ran into him the first fashion week I did, and I I didn't. It was probably a while before I talked to him, but I was aware of who he was. He was encouraging from from the get go, and he had the kind of professionalism that I could recognize from a military perspective. So I just paid very close attention mm. to him for probably the first year I knew him, and right. was just like, "What's he doing? That's the thing to be doing. That's what I should do." Melody Zhang, who's a who's a photographer from New York, was also like very very helpful in kind of like the do's and don'ts of the industry. And then David Yazzi, who's a, a London native photographer, helped me out quite a bit, like in terms of us hanging out, shooting every day. Mm-hmm. This is the camera you want. This is you know this is like the real real fundamentals. Right. So there was like a there was a long string of those. Ah oh, man, how fortuitous! I got yeah, I got really really lucky. Oh. I mean, I got really, really lucky. Incredible. So um, were you still based out of London at that point? I was, but I very quickly exited London because uh, <laughs> I was not there with a visa that would allow me to work. Ah, uh, yes. So if I was going to be working for British GQ, I needed to return home. And I'd also, I was, I was uh, this was a time where the pound was about 1.8 to the dollar. And I was burning through my savings like... I couldn't believe so I finished I finished my apprenticeship as quickly as I possibly could. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons that I was in there six and a half days a week. Were they supportive of your move to photography as well? Yeah, yeah. I had to I mean I had to go and talk to my I had to go and talk to my head cutter about it. Which is which is a hard thing to do, but he said, you know, like you're you're finishing up your training here, like finish you know, finish it up. Um, it's a trade it's always gonna be there for you and like honestly super supportive. He was like, You have this opportunity for a magazine, like go do that. Incredible. Uh, Andrew Rambrup was actually the guy who kind of first put these sort of menswear magazines in front of me. Like I remember him on maybe the second week of my apprenticeship, everyone was sitting on their like 30 minute lunch hour, <laughs> eating like homemade sandwiches and whatever, and on their phones probably, definitely. So really like a, a really like volatile guy is a really volatile guy. And he came in with a stack of magazines from the rake and just like threw them like discuses at every single person <laughs> with like enough force to like knock your lunch out of your hand and and he said something like, like don't just fucking sit there educate yourself and he explained you know like this is this is the world you work in and you need to be aware of it you need to understand what is going on not just on the street but but globally so i remember opening up an issue of the rake and being like it was a revelation it was like this magazine that i had always wanted that really resonated with me that was everything i wanted to see in fashion but it didn't yet exist. You know, it was like it was like old guys and like real gruff looking dudes wearing like classic clothes. Right. You know, living like real life. It was not what I'd been accustomed to with fashion imagery, which is like greased up eighteen year old boys in like the Adriatic. And I was like <laughs> it was, you know, in in the imagery kind of aligning with what I'd been looking for that got some some wheels turning and I was kind of thinking oh like you know I take photos and like my photos are more like this maybe maybe I can do something like that yeah at that point do you feel like you were developing your own personal aesthetic I feel like when I see one of your photographs I know it's yours before I I see the name on Instagram or you know wherever was that a conscious choice or or did that just grow out of shooting I think at the time I, I wasn't developed enough or aware enough to make any kind of uh, choices aesthetically as a photographer mostly because I didn't think of myself as a photographer I was just taking photos mm. of what I like but by virtue of taking photos that you respond to personally 
and and then selecting and editing those photos and putting them forth, you are kind of creating your version of the world. So I think there's a part of that process that is natural. And then later on, as I learned, like I learned more about photography, I wound up getting back into film and studio photography. That's the point. And also when you're kind of studying, you start to study photographers you liked and are looking, have enough work to look back on. That's when I started deciding how I take photos and what I actually want an image to look like and what my values are graphically as a photographer. But that didn't that didn't occur until much later. Yeah. The first two years of taking photos was like just purely emotionally, like I like this guy, I like what he's wearing, or I don't understand why this guy's wearing this, taking a photo and then wrestling out with it a little bit and yeah. like publishing it. So now when you go out shooting, what is your thought process? I think the thought process remains the same. I'm better informed and I take less photos, I hope. Mm. <laughs> I definitely take less photos. I hope I'm better informed. But in terms of in terms of street style or just like uh, if it's reportage or, or journalistic work, you're just going out into the world and reacting to it. Responding to it, yeah. Um, I think with time I've learned to try to push myself to be more reactive and put less thought into it mm -hmm. and they just the moment i have uh, an instinctive reactive to some reaction to something then to take a photo right there's been a conscious effort to keep to keep a kind of like raw element in in my own work yeah that i think that's what you operate on when you start and then when you get kind of used to things and you're you're up and running professionally it's easy just to kind of go on autopilot and start to question things and start to think about things that take you farther away from your emotional reaction to the world around you or a subject in front of you. Right. Um, so there's there's been the last two, three years definitely like a forceful effort to try to be more reactive and like put less thought into it yeah. initially and be less judgmental and just be very, very reactive to whatever my eye kind of resonates with. Yeah. In terms of in terms of aesthetics, a lot of that is like how you're choosing to take a photo, not necessarily the image you're you're choosing to take. Um, I think a lot of that is like how you're manipulating the camera, a little bit of how you're editing it, what kind of equipment you're using with, right? That kind of thing. Yeah. And and I think people would say that as a photographer is working, like in, let's say in a documentative form or a reportage way, or a, I'm not going to stretch that into journalism, but photojournalism, but who's working let's say in real life you will have less of these choices I don't think it's necessarily true in my case like I am choosing where to go in the world and there's some kind of vein of in, in interest that I'm that I'm chasing so that represents a, a whole series of choices and then choosing to be very very thought out about what you photograph or more close to your own emotion your own eye those are also choices yeah it's all choices yeah I think one of the things that I I mean, I know one of the things that I love about your work is that it does maintain that raw element while still feeling incredibly refined. Um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, of some of the bullfighting stuff or um, obviously the street style work, I think just has a vibrancy to it, which is really nice. I feel like some, some street style well, thank stuff- Thank you. Some street style stuff can get, you know, here's a picture of this person wearing this thing, but yours has a definitive point of view. Right, well, uh, the street style has become it's become like a de facto part of the industry and one, once that's created, once this need is quantified with every single publication out there, then then that becomes a case of uh, 
it almost becomes an economy on, on, on itself. You know what I mean? There's supply and demand. I'm not going to say it's a choice, but I've always had a very, very narrow vein of what I'm interested in street style. Mm. I tried, you know, photographing women's wear and doing like really like avant-garde fashion stuff. And like that just wasn't, didn't hold my interest. Yeah. And therefore I wasn't, I, I don't think I was particularly good at it. And there are people who pick up that vein and do do fantastic work with it. And I like to think that my way of evaluating things is still just like the silhouette and the cut and the color and the texture and context of it. And that's yeah. it. But that's still basically seeing fashion through through a straw. Fashion is also maybe too big of a thing nowadays. Yeah. But I've always had that like that really narrow vein to things. So I think that resonates with it with certain people. It also makes it easier to pick up that thread from street style or fashion and carry it over to something like martial arts or bullfighting or racing or tribal Nagaland. Right. Completely. Because it's a very, it's a, it's a broader spectrum. It's a set of lessons that you're kind of looking at. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Have you ever verbalized those or is it more just, you know what that is that you're looking for? I think as a photographer, you're always trying to verbalize things, but you're just using images. Yeah. I hope. I think at least working working in my way or I think your sort of duty as a photographer, you should spend a lot of time observing and but the the process doesn't end there. You need to observe and from those observations you need to make deductions, you need to come to your own conclusions, you need to create your own theses and then you need to test those theses and if they're true or false, like the result of that also needs to become images. Right. I don't see that process being any different if you're working with images or if you're working with words. It just happens to be where your natural strength lies. If, if I think I would be doing exactly the same thing if I had never gotten into photography, but I would do it, be doing it in some other right. medium. Maybe not writing because I'm horrifically dyslexic, but words in the last couple of years, probably two years, have become a part of my work because I realized that it's an error to allow other people to contextualize your work with mm. words. Mm -hmm. And words are also a necessity. We're inundated with images these days. And unlike the world of maybe 15 or 20 years ago, you're not opening up a magazine or a newspaper and hearing about everything from fashion to sports to war to conflict to uh, the local economy from the LA Times or some other publication in which they have a concise worldview. Now you're opening up your phone and you're getting, you know, Beyonce's Instagram and uh, a famine somewhere and the latest trend and whatever Elon Musk is up to. Right. All in one continuous scroll and there's no context to any of it. So context becomes in that, like, more important than ever. And as a photographer, I realized that after sending out a couple of products he really cared about and kind of having them either... I, I, a lot of them I felt like were just butchered by neglect. Mm. Someone else wrote the words, and the words did the piece no justice. Right. <laughs> That's tough. Um, well, it, it's tough, and I understand. I mean, you're a writer. You're putting words to something that you weren't there for, and you have so many words you have to put down. You're on a, you're on a deadline. So from that, I started writing for my own pieces. Yeah. Almost out of necessity, just, just to, 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 to preserve the integrity of my own work. Right. Which is writing is really hard for me. I'm not I'm not good at it, and it's very challenging. It takes me like an absurd amount of time to write anything. I've I've got a, a piece coming out in a week, and it's like four or five pages. It's taken me a year. 
and I've worked on it literally every free second I had. I wrote 23, 25 versions of it. Wow. Some of them were 20 pages long. It's really, really hard. It's really hard for me, but I think doing the hard thing is is very important, and I think the more involved you get with your own work, the more the integrity of it becomes important, and the more you have to have ownership of every part of it. Yeah. So words, you know, words come into play with that. I still think that my... I always hope that my strength is images because images are, yeah. Images communicate instantly, but you can't. I I don't think it's I don't think it's possible to work in the way I've worked and not come to. From your own observations, come to your own conclusions, and then need to put those conclusions forward. Right. If you don't do that, you probably become very bored or very insane. <laughs> Definitely, that's a very good way to put it. Speaking of Instagram, how do you, how do you feel about the platform? Do you feel like you enjoy interacting with it, or is it a necessary <laughs> evil at this point? Well, it's become it's become a part of the background, right? Like it's 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 there again. It's it's every day. It's part of it's part of everyone's life. It's it's you know it's um, it's been normalized, right? It's like a right. it's a very normal thing, and I think that automatically means that something else is coming. As soon as something becomes like standard or everyday, then like something else is coming along to disrupt that. I still think like a lot of people uh, bitch and moan about it. I still think I would still make the argument that a lot of good comes out of it. It's a fantastic way to communicate. It, it was originally a very very democratic tool and probably still is. And I think that in the times we live in. It's a necessity. I don't think it was born out of some great grand idea. Yeah. Uh, from a genius, it was something that a lot of people all over the world needed and necessitated, and therefore eventually someone was going to make it. The times we live in are amazing times, but we're also burdened with things that that human beings have never had to face before. Right. Um, we're having a worldwide like existential identity crisis which is super interesting watching everyone lose their shit <laughs> but I think mostly it's a good thing I think by and large and Instagram is like very very much a part of this like we're at a time where not over the entire world but most of the world the world that we're probably talking about race doesn't really matter anymore where you're from doesn't really dictate who you are anymore religion certainly has almost nothing to do with who you are, who you hang out with, or what your job is. The country you're from is, by and large, not so much to do with your, with your own identity. Yeah. And with all those new freedoms we have, all of which I think are great, um, and also just the fact that we're traveling a lot and changing jobs a lot and changing cities quite a lot, with all the, the freedoms that it gives us from these things that we used to be born into and we're totally fixed, we have a total identity crisis. Or, you know, now being born into the world and going well into adulthood and having no idea who we are. And I think defining who we are has become a huge burden, right? And, and defining yourself as something that hasn't existed before is, is a challenge in and of itself. And then after your own identity, is like, what is your group? What's your tribe? Who are the people who give your identity context? Who right. are the people that give your identity meaning? Where do you do where do you share values, right? So modern tribalism is like definitely a thing and instagram is a fantastic tool for that it's an ability for people with like interests and often therefore like values mm -hmm. um to be able to find each other and have discourse and that's amazing it is for sure. a, almost everything else about instagram is totally negative 
but that facet of it validates everything else for me it is really fascinating to be able to find your tribe for lack of a better word like case in point yeah, we're here today here, here right? we are that yeah. probably wouldn't have happened 20 years ago it's absolutely true i mean my entire podcast is basically based on <laughs> you know people who inspire me that i found through various mo most often than not instagram but other social media like artists photographers filmmakers you know right and uh yeah, so in that, in that vein, I think that's a really interesting perspective that a lot of people don't think about. Yeah, and I think you can, I think, you know, the other half of it comes down to just, like, discipline, which all human beings are capable of, you know what I mean? Like, don't spend eight hours a day on Instagram. <laughs> right. Like, I spend ten minutes in the morning on Instagram, ten minutes right before I go to sleep, and that's it. And, like, that's, that's enough policy. to, like, check into people, talk to people, post something, whatever. Yeah. Like, that's it. I am not that disciplined, I'm ashamed to admit. <laughs> I think I think like that you know every every generation has to develop a new discipline in some way right because there's new technology there's a loss of social norms and like you have to learn how to how to you know how to how, how to interact with these things you know what right. I mean every time a new drug is invented like everyone goes crazy on it a couple people die there's some regulation then people decide to chill out right it's the <laughs> same thing with new technology right. and I see a lot of people that spend way too much time on Instagram base way too many decisions on Instagram and like their whole lives are kind of shaped with which is like totally wrong yeah it's a great tool to connect with people it's a great way to put your work out how many hours of the day does that take right half an hour like you gotta be disciplined you know what i mean we're, yeah. we're, we're social creatures we're hardwired for social interactions so you have to kind of you have to be uh you have to evaluate that right right yeah but i think if you evaluate it it's fine you yeah know? yeah so switching gears just a little bit I don't normally love to like delve into gear and that kind of stuff, but I really... Oh, it's too bad, I do. No, I know you do. <laughs> like, I definitely can, but I, I, I always think it's somewhat insulting for somebody to be like, oh, what'd you shoot that with? Like, as if that makes the picture. But I really do kind of want to get into the, your philosophy of shooting, I think yeah. is so unique and really intriguing. And I think, I think people would really get a lot out of hearing you talk about it. And, and so if you don't mind, I'd love to get into your choice of gear and how you think about it and, and why you choose the things that you do. Well, and I would, I'd preface that by saying that I agree with you entirely. And like, I get the question all the time, like, Oh, what lens did you use? What camera do you use? You know? And as a person that once asked those questions, like I'm aware it's a very amateurish question, but also as a person like loves gear, it's fun to geek out over. For sure. I think it's like the wrong philosophy to go into photography, especially just thinking about gear. I think photography is like a very insecure, medium that teeters on the edge of art and generally the people who obsess with gear are like not on the art side of it <laughs> that is very true but i do think that if you look at equipment um rather than appraising it from specifications and capabilities and cutting edge and not cutting edge and newest newest and best and brightest rather than looking at equipment from that perspective which i did for a long time you instead look at it from the perspective of your process mm -hmm. So what is your process as a, as a photographer or an artist or whatever the case is? And how does your how does your equipment interface with that? Or how does your approach to equipment interface with that? That becomes a more valid and more interesting question. Mm -hmm. um, as for what I use, I, I've got like a, a Nikon suite that I shoot quite a lot of stuff on that's very fast Nikon D5s with crazy telephoto lenses. And I still probably use the 85 the most out of that. I'm probably more proud of like the custom-made Ramoa I made for it that yeah. has all my camera stuff than I am the camera itself. But what I'm now using a majority of the time for my, my own work and then assignments, 
probably not using it like 85 to 90 percent of the time is uh the leica md system leica's the first time i saw Leica was like five maybe six years ago in the hands of a photographer that i really looked up to at the time luke carby whose photography i loved and i i he was one of the guys that like one of the very few guys like technically I looked at him and I looked at Sam Haskins and I was like, how do they do it? Mm. How do they do it? Right. I reshot Luke Carby's stuff once trying to get the same effect. And I was like, I don't understand. I was there. I had two days. I couldn't get it. He got it. I couldn't get it. What's going on? You know? <laughs> and I meet him to him at a party and I don't actually think I've talked to him since then. And he was using Leica and he's like, I was like, what is that? He's like, it's Leica. And I could just tell it was very expensive and I was very broke. So I'm like, I don't want to touch it. Because if I touch it, <laughs> I'll get the credit card. And I'll do regrettable things. I was aware of what a Leica was then, and then later on, I got into I got into film because I wanted to kind of like learn photography properly. I had a little bit of money then, so I went up buying a, a Leica M6, and I came to realize that it was like a very very pure system. It was very hands on. Every finger falls on some kind of mechanical control, right? right? It's very limited. It's not appropriate for for everything, but. I love that it was so hands-on, it was so pure. The images were really, really pure. There was a kind of, there's a definite quality to the images that come out of like a glass and like a camera, like that's that's unquestionable. But more than that, because it's so hands-on and because it's so, uh, you know, you're not shooting 12 frames per second raw and you're not doing, <laughs> a, you know, a 78-point autofocus all over the place on like 1.4 it really demands that you focus totally, totally on whatever your subject is. Yeah. And not just focus on it, it gives you a sort of desperation. Like the milliseconds count so much that you can't sit there and think, is this what I photographed? Is this not what I photographed? Is this good? Is this bad? Is this in good taste? Whatever. Like you just have to fucking shoot it. Right. You have to like literally the second you feel an emotional reaction to something, you just have to like go, um, which is a much more raw way of working and whether that's that's a better way of working only to other people to tell but for me that's closer to my own eye as a photographer mm -hmm. so that is the way i should be working because the more reserved and distant i get from my work the more my work i feel just looks very very commercial and like a lot of other people's work i was shooting two like m6s for a long time hundreds and hundreds of rolls of film i was doing like three or four hundred rolls every i don't know four or five months wow and I was learning a lot and, and I was, but it wasn't really, I, I couldn't really work that way professionally. It was just, you know, I can't turn around images in a single day. Yeah. And it wasn't a really commercial feeling photo. And it was, I was lugging around like massive things of film and I was getting into trouble with Russian, Russian security at <laughs> just Moscow Russians. International. And like, it was just, it was, I loved it, but it was really, really problematic. It was really problematic and I was losing a lot of product and I was spending way too much time scanning and scanning and cleaning up and things like that and then a little bit over two years ago like it put out this weird camera called an md which was basically their digital m model without a screen no hdi no bracketing no autofocus obviously so it looked it looked like it it looked like an m6 it felt like an old m6 except that you can shoot like 3,000 photos on an internal memory card and you've got batteries right so i took a gamble and i wound up buying two of those and going out to um, the Mosul offensive in Iraq when ISIS was getting pushed out of Mosul, and I photographed everything. Wow! That that those weeks uh, just on those two cameras, and it was 
it was a huge it was a huge leap for me i was like i was really unsure whether that was going to pay off but it wound up being like totally addictive i couldn't use i really did not want to use anything after that everything wow. else just felt cheap but what i found was like you had two cameras two lenses no digital handicap and you really just had to be completely present and hyper focused in the moment and i love that as a person with an attention span like a goldfish like i love that it demanded of that of me yeah and that i had to deliver on that so that's where it started to shape my own process i had to be completely and utterly present in the moment i had to be completely reactive and i i didn't even have enough time to be cynical or, or, or prejudiced in any way you just had to be there and you had if you wanted to get a photo you just had to be almost unconscious in it right um, which i really really enjoyed and then i also enjoyed the fact like you can't review the images yeah it brought a lot of the imagery or uh, brought a lot of mystery back into the imagery right like i was you know fashion week shooting three four thousand photos a day like at the end of the day you're just like 2 a.m scrolling through shit and you just <laughs> don't care whereas these like i would shoot for months and not look at the images wow and you're just shooting and you would remember the images you're like oh god i hope that comes out that was really beautiful i hope that comes out and i would have a rule i would go out and start taking photos every single day and then i wouldn't look at the images until i finished the trip so in that way it was a lot like film like it was a blind process and because i wasn't aware of the images i was taking there was no self-censorship so i think with modern digital photography you go out and take photos and you're like oh why 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 did i photograph that like you can see too much of yourself and you can see things you don't like in it and you self-correct right right you like chip it and then you self-correct and where it's like like it's like no you were taking pictures of that because you're lonely and sad and like that's that's just <laughs> that's it right but that's a more those images are more true to who I am or how I was feeling at the time or what I actually experienced in in that environment. So in that way, I started looking at it. I was like, okay, like this is something that suits my process better. This is a this is a conscious decision in how I'm interfacing with the equipment I'm using, how I'm interacting with the world around me. So that was that was definitely a choice and that's I'm not that camera is not for everyone. It's not for most people. The only thing I would advise is like think about what your process is as as an artist before you think about what your equipment is as a photographer. Yeah, I love that idea. That's it. And I love your approach. I think it's I think it's really a great way to, to shoot. I learned on film, and when I go to digital, I am the worst jumper, and I will, like, self-flagellate after every shot yeah. <laughs> instead yeah. of just focusing on the yeah. uh, on the shot. Yeah, it's, it's very much... Um, it's human instinct to do that, right? Like we, we love our reflection in our mirror. We love we love images. We love screens. So if it's not there, then it's it's not an option. There are downsides to it, and I again I say like that is not a camera for everyone. And to a lot of people who are fantastic photographers, or have the capability to be, it's that's a seven or eight thousand dollar mistake. But if you understand what your process is or what you want it to be, it's a really interesting thing to look at, and you know. You can also just put duct tape on the back of your Nikon and maybe it comes out the same way. I don't know. Right. But there are shortcomings within and it's like on the new one, which, which I now have, you can use Wi-Fi and you can review images if you need to and you can live view images. So like that's nice. If you if you now I can shoot way more on that because if I have a situation where I have a client over my shoulder and right. they're like, oh, it's the focus. And it's like, well, yeah, here, look, just like you hook up your iPhone to it and leave me alone and I'll do my thing. <laughs> So that's really nice. But I remember the first camera 
the first MD series, you couldn't do that. There was no way to review the camera except taking the memory card out and like wow. shoving in your MacBook and reviewing everything. We were at a uh, Iraqi special operations uh, forces forward operating base on one of the suburbs of Mosul with my friend and, and, and Shepard TMNF, uh, who took me out to Iraq, or I was, I was out there with him, I should say. And there was like Iraqi special forces guys, American special forces guys, French special forces guys, and Australian special forces guys, all kind of milling around. And I was, as I'd been in their shoes, I was really aware of security. And, you know, as I, I don't normally ask people's permission to take photos, but in this case, I went up to every person. I was like, I am so-and-so, I'd like to take a photo of you. It's gonna show this and getting their consent because I don't, I don't want to piss off these guys. And <laughs> right. I really, I respect what they do and I understand that like an image can really put them in danger or sure. really put their career in danger and I don't want to do that. So I went up to every single person, I went to the Americans and I'm like, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'd like to take a photo. And they're like, okay, like, you know, don't have this and it, don't have that. I'm like, fine, cool, whatever, here's a cigarette. As I was doing this and, and, and getting yeses and nos from people, I'm taking some photos and this like totally irate Iraqi special forces dude comes running up to me with his M4 and he's screaming at me. He's like, he's like, you are taking photos of me. You are taking photos of me. This is, this is sensitive. He's like, give me your camera. And I was like, he's like, delete it. You know? And I, I, I was like, I showed him my camera. I'm like, it's like, there's no screen. <laughs> you know, what do I, what do I do? And I definitely not taking a photo of this guy. This guy was, was like not even anywhere near where I was photographing. But I had no way of telling him. And so he's like, I'm gonna take your camera. And he was, he was threatening to like destroy my camera. And at this point he had, his, he had his rifle leveled at me and I was really, really nervous. But I also didn't want to give him my camera because it's my camera. Right. So I went up just having to argue like back and forth for a while. And I was like, there's, there's no pictures. There's, there's no pictures. And like a couple other people kind of chimed in and were like, he didn't photograph you. So it was okay, but there are at least in the early MD system, there were like serious, serious <laughs> shortcomings in certain situations. Right. It's like people have the expectation now that they want to see the pictures right away. I think you can also just probably lie and say it's film and whatever. No right. one's going to know. But yeah. Wow. That's intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was not a good time. Just continuing with your sort of general approach and philosophies. Do you have any philosophies around post-production? Do you retouch heavily or do you try to get it in camera? I still believe like you get it in camera. I think that's, I think it's really, really, really important to, to know the image that you want and that you're after and that you're taking when you take it. There's still happy accidents in X, Y, and Z. And there's also situations where you might look at something and say beforehand, like I need to crop this because it's far away or yeah, whatever the case is and that's fine. But like, I really, really, really try to keep things as pure like they used to say like in the can yeah, as possible for sure. um i mean I, I and conversely i think if you're you know if you're not doing like light rooms and levels and curves like that's just unprofessional right um people i think people who are not photographers wrongly believe that that's something that only exists now with photoshop and like no point in fact like every photographer used to have a whole group of guys behind him that were handling his film and editing his film and cleaning his film up and retouching his film. That's always occurred. It's easier now and it's easier for the photographer now because he doesn't need to have five or six guys behind him. I see a lot of people, especially in especially in street style, that do like really heavy retouching and photoshopping, which 
I don't agree with because I think that's sort of against the genre. Like it's meant to be real people with real style. You could also say that it's been heavily corrupted by influencers and right. fashion advertising pivoting on that. But I don't do in street style. I don't do I don't do any retouching or or photoshopping. The the rare occasion might be like the rare occasion might be something like really egregious in the background that's like really really awful and that's kind of in the context of like I, I would never do that on another project except for a street style because it's meant to be sort of idealized sure um, I also think people have gone a little bit crazy with like the amount that they push their digital processing I look at a lot of images and I'm just like oh my god this is so processed like yeah. You can tell immediately has that look. Yeah, you can tell, and I, I think it. I think it detracts when everyone has a saturation and the vividness, like just pegged. You're presenting people with a world that is no longer real, right? Mm -hmm. I think the challenge is now: how do you make an image? How do you make like a faithful image of the real world, not like an attractive image? I think like photography has really been stuck in this kind of cult of perfection and beauty for like a long time, and we're still chasing that, and like. It's a really interesting. Now point. we have a now we have kind of a an inflation on reality. Yeah, you know, which which I I don't think is a I don't think is a good thing. Right. But I still would say like the correct way to do things is like you know react to something, know what you're after, get it in the can, and then your post processing is just sort of your it's just sort of like your your values on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think it needs to be tweaking a few things here. I don't think it needs to be extreme. If you're ever, if you're ever in a non-commercial capacity, you know, if it's not a ad campaign or a lookbook or something like that, like if you're out shooting on the street and like if you need to Photoshop something out, like you just didn't get the image. Right. But it's okay. Like you don't <laughs> right. always get the image. It's fine. Yeah. But yeah, that's my, uh, what's my take? Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely more of that camp for sure. I also believe in just getting it and in cameras closely. Maybe that just comes back from the fact that it I just never, I don't know, retouching and all that. Like I'm very, I'm very savvy in that, but it never feels the same. It doesn't. That's true. Like the best images are just like, you got it. Right. You know, it's yeah. right there. It's in your hand. For sure. I know you mentioned the, uh, the 85 mil lens. Is that yeah. kind of your go-to focal length? Um, that is. And I think I started on a 50, I was just shooting 85 for a really long time. And then it was like, 75 to 200 mess around a lot of like 135 it's a back and forth i i think i like the 50 because it's very close to human vision mm -hmm. and i quite like that like you look at that and feel like you're in a scene whereas i look at probably because of a fashion background i look at a 35 or like a 28 and it just feels fishbowled and insane to me it's it's almost comical and it's really interesting and i enjoy it but <laughs> right. it just doesn't i'm like it doesn't strike me as real 85 is really nice, I think, because it allows you to to be very selective with the real world around you. It's a good standoff distance. I find that like that 15 foot distance is like quite nice on an 85. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the, the things I've done involving like conflict or matadors and things like that, um, I've used an 85 a lot for that, and people are kind of like, "Oh, what are you doing? Like this isn't a this isn't a photojournalism lens. This is like a fashion lens." Blah blah blah. And I'm like, well. One part of me is like, that's what I know and that's what I'm used to. But the other part is it allows you just, you're really allowed like a single subject with that. So you're very, the dialogue that you're picking is very, is very narrow. Yeah. But also I think very deep. And 
I think when you work with the 85 or like longer telephoto lenses, like you get really used to the flatness of it. Yeah. And you get really used to how it, how it renders like the human face. So almost anything I do, it's like a 50 and an 85 or a 50 and a 90. Yeah. Like both of those, both of those things. And it's, it's always a debate to me, like which one I use, but most of the time I just use both. Yeah. Kind of like situation, situation choosing. And it seems to, it's, that seems to work out. Do you usually carry two bodies? If I'm just on the street doing my thing, like normally I have one, if it's an assignment, if it's an assignment, like the, the recent like cultural historical thing, I mean, that was, I had two lenses like the entire time in those kind of situations. Like when you're doing reportage, it's really hard to know what you're going to encounter and it's almost impossible to know what the lighting is like for the, the cultural historical thing, which, which was in Florence, that was like shooting guys in like really really seedy fucked up gyms with like awful lighting <laughs> right amazing images super dramatic lots of motion but you have no idea what the lighting is going to be and it was almost always at night so with that it was shooting like the 50 quite a lot yeah because you can get a little bit more wide open with that and there's just like there's so many things going on around you and then when we got to the actual fights the actual matches it was totally different you were stuck in one fixed position the entire time you couldn't move at all a super harsh light a lot of refracted light really really orange and orange red yellow kind yeah. of like hot light and you couldn't move at all and there was a lot there was just violence fucking everywhere <laughs> so with that i i never touched the 50 i had a 90 on my back which i like barely ever used and most of that was a 75 to 200 wow 70 to 200 yeah because it was just like things happening everywhere and a lot of it i was shooting behind a barrier with mesh in front to, to, I guess to protect the protect the photographer so it was like that was a really different that was like a really really different thing right but I'd say if, if it's an assignment that I that I normally carry two if I'm just walking around then I only carry one yeah I see a lot of guys walking around with like a backpack and a tripod and like two cameras and it's like that just seems how can you react with that <laughs> yeah how like how can you react and I think you're just overthinking it yeah but two cameras especially the MD system works out it works out pretty well because like they're very simplified and they're very pure and you kind of it gives you the ability to rack to kind of like two different sets of things yeah yeah does the uh, m6 ever make an appearance or do you just lean on the mds at this point i still shoot i still shoot the m6 but i only shoot it inside of the state of california yeah. <laughs> mostly when i'm home and i still i mean i love film and that is it's irreplaceable but i went through so many like you know turning in 110 120 rolls of film and getting 30 percent of them back with like fog and dust from like sitting in a suitcase or Ugh, getting right. x-rayed out with a bunch of waves through it that's really like, it's really problematic it's it's not the challenge of using film it's just the fact that the world used to be built with quite a lot of infrastructure to use film right. you're sending it out you're getting processed it was sent by special mail career where you know they really respected it you could buy good film almost anywhere any major capital you could get a process like if you're not in la new york or paris i don't know where you get film processed right. carrying it around is a bad idea but inside of california i love using it it's what i shoot around home and then if it's appropriate for a client it's always what i'll what i'll prefer to work on yeah with that understanding but i i think there's a nice there's really a nice parity between using that at home and using the MD when I'm traveling. Yeah. Uh, do you do you typically carry a, a camera with you, or do you take breaks from shooting? I almost always have a camera. Yeah. 
I think photography is really easy, and with that, you you have the burden of always need, needing to have a camera. <laughs> right. It's your job. Yeah. It was interesting in uh, one of the previous podcasts with Matt Hranick, we were talking about this idea of traveling and, and maybe taking a moment or two to live in that moment versus photographing it, and and we were talking about the existential crisis of the photographer, where it's like, well, that light's really pretty right now. Maybe I should uh, pick up that camera. Right. Right. And that's, I mean, that's really, really hard. Like I remember like years ago, there was, there was years and years ago. This is like when I first got into photography, I saw these like amazing dudes all styled out in like a vintage Bronco, like rolling down the street. And I was in like somewhere down by San Diego. And like, I was, I was with a girl at lunch and like, I jumped on the table and like jumped over this little barricade on the, the restaurant and like went tearing down the street to take a photo and I came back and she was gone. <laughs> and I was like, well, did you get the shot? I'm not really going to complain about that. Like <laughs> at the time I was psyched. I still, I still, I think photography is a, if you're really going to do photography, photography is how you live and photography is a lifeline. Yeah. lifetime obligation you always have the, you always have a camera with you right a lot of my favorite photos are personal photos and like those are never going to be published but that's because and they have the most meaning to me and that's sure. because i have the camera with me when that when that shot occurs i think if it is who you are and the entirety of who you are it's not that you're like you're at that lunch and you just bailed out and everyone's bummed it's like <laughs> no that's who you are right you know yeah absolutely I think that I think that's kind of it becomes if, if it becomes the way you experience the world that's acceptable if it is something that just interrupts your day either you're not a photographer or you're meant to be like a studio photographer which is totally fine that's just like a different sure. that's a different way of that's a different way of working another part of that like the more disruptive example of that would be like social media and like self-documenting um where I don't find a camera, I don't find a, a camera to be disruptive at all, and like I always have one with me. I find cell phones incredibly disruptive, and cell phone cameras incredibly disruptive. And the highlight of my day is if I'm in a place where I don't need my phone and I can just put my phone away for the day. Right. I would much prefer to go through the day, take photos of my camera, and post this stuff later than like be pulling out my camera to document like my sandwich that I had or, or whatever the case is and I see that disruption creeping into the lives of everyday people much more than photographers have ever had interference from their own cameras right I would agree with that I think it yeah I think it's your it's your it's your motive and it's the kind of photographer you are yeah the next thing I'd just love to get into is uh your own personal tastes and aesthetic and how you think about your own personal style and what influences you on that side of things well as far as my own my own taste or my own style I we're in a really privileged time where you get to see the backside of every creative person's life which I, I don't think we got to see before which is kind of interesting I'd say it's very hard to separate my own taste and my own style from what influences my my work or what things I pursue in my work I mean something grabs your attention something most importantly grabs your imagination and like I think for at least for me I would assume for other creative people that can become like a an obsession like a real like a real real force in your life you know yeah and also something not just not just a force in your life but also something that has a very deep effect 
on you personally. I mean, I spend so much time looking at other people and what they're wearing and what that means, what that means to them personally, what that means culturally, what that means politically. What I wear myself is, it's very, I guess it's, it's very, it's very considered, but it's also very, in a lot of ways, very reserved. And I, I th- it's definitely not, but I like to think it's very minimal because I think if like you're living your whole life inside of that kind of bubble, your choices affect you deeply on like a personal level. Like right. I, I don't wear black, right? I have like one black motorcycle jacket, which I'm retiring after crashing in it. Um, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> and like, I don't wear black because it like, it has a really severe effect on me and makes me very, very severe and very black and white and very serious about things. And like, hence I don't wear black, but I'd say what, what I wear is very much about what I've learned to admire in other people. I find that if I, if I have a, uh, like a new friendship or a new relationship, or I've gone to a new place and I've found, um, an incredible people that I admire really good example of that would be like the Kurds in Kurdistan. Mm. I'm automatically very, uh, I automatically kind of mimic their dress. Part of that is a very, very human facet of dress, which is like we we always try to blend in, right? We always try to imitate right. what we what we admire. But also, some of it is also just like intentional and like I really admire these people. Therefore, I'm going to carry a little bit of who they are with me by by the way I dress. So a lot of it is like places I've been and things I've admired and the people that I've the people that I've met. And also just like things you've things you've learned, like you wear something in a new way and it's more comfortable or warmer or works really well. It can also be specific people you've met. I ran into Matt Franick like four years ago. Didn't know who he was. I ran into him somewhere in Brooklyn and I was just like, Who is this guy? He's so like he's so cool and there was something about him where I'm like, I'm gonna meet this guy again. Like there's something going on here. This guy's this guy's it. And I think like I were beat up white jeans like 90% of the time after getting to know Matt and like he's kind of the guy who was like oh this is a thing that you could do like white jeans work whereas previously I was like oh no like get dirty like that doesn't work like blue jeans every single day you know right. so I think a lot of it is like imitative and, and emotional and based on things that like I I like or absorb and then the other aspect of it would be practicality mm-hmm. I guess like things that things that work. I mean, most of my life is out of a suitcase, and you have to learn how to make everything you can pack in a suitcase and not be in various uh, airlines' absurd weight restrictions. <laughs> um, you know, not stay in their good graces, right? So, right. like a lot of things I've wanted mixing together has just been out of necessity. Right. I mean, anywhere I go, I pack one suit, and then probably one jacket and one pair of pants from acronym yeah and like some white jeans a bunch of bespoke blue button down shirts and like some of my own stuff and just kind of that all winds up getting mixed together in the wash but all that's pretty practical right like one good blue or gray suit will take you through like essentially like any formal meeting you need right you can put a jacket on you know at night if you want to look a little bit more formal or for a meeting or something like that or you can wear the trousers separately I'm a huge fan of acronym and that stuff's fantastic because it's um aside from aside from how it looks, it's the only the only thing I've ever put on that makes you 
genuinely feel like you can navigate life a little bit more easily. Like oh, it's, it's it's waterproof. It's super functional. You've got pockets for everything. It's very very fluid to use. It feels very much uh, not like armor, but like body armor used to. Right. And like you put that on, you've got to go cover a, a, a protest or some conflict somewhere or matters or whatever, and you puts you in a sort of combative mindset, and it's you know you can functionally carry everything you need, and it's waterproof. But you can also mix that with a suit. You can mix that with casual clothes. And the rest of it is really just like what's versatile, what works really well. You know, like I think I have like 15 bespoke Oxford cloth button-down shirts. <laughs> I think that sounds super banal and super boring, but you can wear those things with anything. For sure. And like you can put them in almost any washing machine and they're fine. And like they get wrinkles, they're fine. And then probably the last part of it is also like... Uh, personal elected choice like what do you you know what do you choose to what do you choose to put in that like it's never been a, a conscious or intentional choice of mine but like there's a lot of military vintage in what i wear and, and a lot of that is because i'm like okay like you know this thing is an m65 field jacket's a standard thing and that will work almost anywhere on earth and that works with the suit and it works with casual clothes and it works if it's cold and it works if it's extremely cold you can throw a liner on and that makes sense for me because like I'm actually a veteran, so like me wearing this makes maybe like a little bit more sense than right. I guess other people who are just kind of imitating a character or something. It's not military appropriation. No, 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 and I, I don't mind that, but I mean, at least for me, I'm like, okay, you know, there's a reason I wear this. Yeah, um, sure. Some of my old military equipment as well, but like, essentially, you take, you know, things you react to emotionally that that really resonate with you, um, practicality, and then your own idea of who you are and you put that in like the uh the washing machine right the dryer on like the tumble cycle and like you get my wardrobe <laughs> that's a good like a little bit of there's like a little bit of there's a lot of like tailoring and, and a little bit of editing in there like all my clothes i tweak a little bit yeah I'm kind of like always feel like things need to be tailored and yeah tailored or edited in like one way or another that's a part of it too but you also have your own design a uh, company, would you call it? Observer Collection? I guess a company a company of one. Um, so I saw the Observer Collection. And a lot of that is, like everything else I've done, it's, a, it's out of, it's from observation and also from a little bit from necessity. So right. I spent a lot of time when I was still finishing up my, my degree in college, traveling and like working for GQ and other magazines to the point where I was like barely ever at school. And uh, I came to realize that I was traveling a lot and I was privy to experiencing culture kind of all over the world, but I was not the only one who was doing this. Most of my friends were doing this, whether they were photographers or designers or writers or uh, press agents or businessmen. Like, I realized that being on the cutting edge of things now meant being on an airplane quite often. And I also meant that I, I also realized that living that kind of life fundamentally sort of changes your perspective and with that also your needs change so that was the kind of basis for observer was i was realizing that the creative class the creative elite if you will were traveling all the time and with that came this kind of like existential crisis this sort of need for ritual mm -hmm. by that i just mean that that acts that you can kind of repeat every single day wherever you are on earth and it will give you a sense of routine in, in a life that is like anything but routine. Right. 
Um, but as human beings, we need that to stay sane. People say we're nomadic, but we're also, when we were sort of designed as nomadic people, we were not designed to be nomadic people by jet plane, um, which <laughs> we are now. So I, I, I observed that. And then also in my own life, there was just like, there's a lot of things I needed that didn't exist or demands that I demands that I had on equipment that no one was really meeting. There was clothing for people who traveled a lot, which is like your REI and your Patagonia, right. which was fine. But if you don't want to look like a backpacker and you want to go to a meeting and like actually get the job, high-vis colors are probably not the way to do that. <laughs> you know, this was clothing. There, there's a whole spectrum of clothing that really functions in that like high speed consistent travel thing but it doesn't necessarily work if you're don't want to look like you're climbing the himalayas right even if in fact you are climbing the himalayas and then on the other side of thing there was what fashion is and what high fashion is and also what tailoring was which was often beautifully made clothes of really fine materials but maybe very very stuck within one cultural vein looking very british or very italian or very american or very japanese or very very high fashion wasn't quite adaptable enough didn't really it wasn't something you could wear when it was raining it wasn't something you could wear if you decided that day that you were going to ride a motorcycle right a lot of it was like a little bit too attention getting i found that like with a lot of my work you really don't want to be the fashion guy in the room you know you want you want to be well dressed enough that you meet someone and they they trust you and they have a positive positive impression of who you are but like you don't mean that dude is wearing like a full look of something and <laughs> you know you're in Sevilla Spain and everyone's looking at you like you've right. you know got an extra appendage growing out of your forehead um, so all these things kind of made me think that there needs to be a uniform that is that's beyond uh, beyond a national identity that's really built for people who travel well and often yeah, no, it's a it's a great line. I love I love the bag. I love the passport wallet and the uh, sketchbook holder, which I definitely need to get at some point. Yeah, I'm excited to see what you do next with it. Well, thanks, Ben. Um, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> it comes off the production line. Uh, and you also are pretty prolific with personal projects in between regular gigs, right? I mean, you uh, the Matador project was that a personal project? Yeah, that was. I mean, I think the thing with we talk about I think in the creative fields like we talk a lot about like personal projects and passion projects and things like that and I think it's kind of a misnomer I think like if you're working creatively because that's where your strengths lie then there shouldn't be any personal projects right Just projects. let's not pretend that a lot of professional projects don't wind up being unpaid anyway I think it's really important that you always you're constantly pursuing what your interest and passion is a, because that's where you're going to do your best work, but also B, that's where you're going to continue to, to grow as a creative person. Right. You always need to be in that uncomfortable space between the unknown and the unfamiliar and where control and comfort lie. Right. Um, that's a critical space to, to consistently operate in. And that's where a lot of personal projects fall for me. Almost all the things that I've pursued just personally that I've just said, like, hey, I'm really interested in this. Um matadors and and uh throw machina which is like the the world of the bulls is the the spain say like the spanish say um that's something i spent a lot of time on and that did wind up turning into like a i want to say it was like a, a 12 page editorial for le Fisial. 
Oh wow! Spain. Incredible. So like, don't go into it saying, "Oh, like this isn't you know this isn't for any publication. There's no money in it." Like, go into it because you're interested in it, but constantly be thinking like, "How do I tell this story to an audience?" You know, that isn't just like my Instagram or, or whatever. Right. Because um, I think if you're passionate about something, it's because you're finding truth in it, and that truth is something you need to share. So almost all of these projects, like the the Matador project, started off as something where I read a couple books, was really interested, didn't know where I where I, my moral compass lay on it, went to go see uh, several bullfights, went to a uh, essentially like a bullfighting library and just read every book he possibly could find, interviewed bullfighters, got to know quite a few of them, and that built up into a lot of personal work that eventually built into a, a professional project. But other ones, Caccia Storico in Florence, Nagaland, which is a which is something that just came out with um, W.M. Brown magazine. Um, yeah, that was a great story. I just read that one. Actually. The some of the stuff I've done on the Kurds and uh, Peshmerga fighters and things like that, like those have all started as something I was interested in. But as I was interested in it and exploring it, I was also always trying to find a publication for it. Right. I think if you really believe in your subject or what you're learning or what you're interested in like you should always be finding a publication for it does a publication validate it it doesn't validate the truth of the matter but it does bring it to more people than we're already looking at your work right it does bring truth to light like let's say it's a great point i love that so i, th- I think that's always it's important it's, it is important to do personal work it's important to do work without the expectation of being paid for work that's just for your own professional growth but that work should always be in pursuit of a truth that you want to put in front of people right so i think that's i think that's really critical all the personal projects i have have all come from one line of questioning and i would say originally that was just something that i kind of stumbled into and then i became aware of it as i examined these projects but about four years ago at this thing called um the race of gentlemen Oh right, yeah. Which is in it? It's it's a bigger thing now. It's in Wildwood, New Jersey, and I think they've also done it in California. I went out there with a friend of mine who was really interested in it to shoot it for his brand. It was like a standard thing, you know. I mean, it was like vintage guys riding vintage motorcycles in the sand and like vintage hot rods. And I'd never photographed actual racing before, so I went to go set up on this this sort of guard tower that they had. That was the turnaround point for the race. And there's a lot of other photographers down there. I had this big telephoto. And I was talking to my friend, uh, Christian McCain of Left Field. I, you know, he asked me, he's like, where are you, where are you gonna set up your camera? I'm like, I'm gonna go up in that guard tower because it's got, you know, it's got a good field of view and it's right at the end of the race. And I'm like, what about you? And he says, well, I'm, I'm gonna wait before the start line. And I looked at him, I'm like, why would you do that? There's no action there, you know? And he says, I just like watching their eyes before the race. He's <laughs> like, you can always tell it's gonna win. I thought it was really interesting, so I did one tour in the, in the the guard tower, and immediately went back and I and I spent the rest of the next two days of the races, sitting before the start, just looking at these guys' eyes and looking wow. at how they carried on before the race. Didn't pay attention to the standings, didn't pay attention to the events. I was just photographing guys based on my reaction to them, and I, I guess you could say the extremity of their their persona, right? Right. Um, whether they were really bombastic or really quiet and introverted. In the end, I focused on three guys. One guy was very focused but very bombastic, and the world seemed to kind of circle around him. Another guy was kind of like a Shinto Buddhist monk, 
and just like always had his eyes fixed on the the finish line and looked very meditative on top of his motorcycle and was very 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 severe <laughs> and then another guy was uh kind of constantly checking over his equipment not really talking to anyone going through things again and again and again and uh respectively they came in first second and dead last <laughs> um who, who came in last the guy who was constantly going over his equipment, which maybe goes back to our <laughs> That's photography equipment, equipment section. <laughs> but I would say that the guy, the, the guy who came in dead last was actually a crowd favorite. It was his first race. He knew no one there. He built his own motorcycle. He had no mechanical background. Wow. He pushed his bike back every single time it broke down. So he was a crowd favorite. And <laughs> as I came to talk to these guys, and the guy who came in first, I kind of asked him, I was like, you know, you're a really good rider. Why are you doing this versus MotoGP? Why are you doing this when there's no money in it? You know, why are you doing this when you're going to build a bike yourself? You don't have a team. And he says, well, you know, like I'm not racing the other guy. I'm just trying to beat myself. And with that, I kind of realized that, you know, men are not competitive because they like winning. And they're not competitive because they like beating people. They're competitive because it's a form of self-confrontation. It's a form of meditation. This is like a, an epiphany to me, and that's what led me to want to go photograph conflict in Iraq, want to go photograph Peshmerga fighters, want to go photograph bullfighters, want to go photograph cultural historical fighters, because these were all men who had alternatives in life that weren't violent. They could have lived life other ways. They could have not been, uh, not been in the rules they chose, and yet they still chose in the 21st century to... to pursue a life that put them in mortal combat against against other men or at least if not mortal combat severe the, the severe risk of, of death or injury and as that was a choice that they made there had to be something that was more valuable than life and limb that they were making this choice based off of and the conclusion I've come to is that men choose these competitive roles and men are competitive in their nature because it is the most brutal and fundamental way to have a spiritual experience so that's all of my personal projects all of the projects that i've pursued on my own let's say have been in the vein of that line of questioning wow that's incredible well hopefully it's hopefully <laughs> so hopefully some truth comes out of it Otherwise, no i think i think a bunch of dumb boys no I, I, th I think there's so much there and i think there's so much there to explore from the masculine side from the feminine side from from all perspectives i think it's yeah I think that's a, a great place to end on. Well, women know. are smarter than us. <laughs> right. They wouldn't. They do. don't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, is there anything else you feel like we should cover that we didn't cover that you'd like to? Oh, man. I think that that's like more conversations after this. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see what you do next with your personal work, with the photography editorial side, and then observer collection as well. So I really appreciate you sitting down with me. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, man. Much appreciated.